Hello, and welcome back to The Food Podcast. This is a show where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. There's a bird's eye photo on Instagram of Chris Warman lying on her cookbooks. I'd say there are at least 60 of them. They're all cookbooks from 2021, and I can see circular plates of colorful food on the cover of these books. Bold fonts, subtle fonts, illustrated covers, photographed hands, a plate of vibrant asparagus, a chocolate tart against a turquoise background. I can see an emerald green cover, a poppy red one. I see soft watercolors and mustard yellow. Chris is lying on an angle in the corner of the shot with a sapphire blue cookbook in her hands from the Cape Breton restaurant Bite House. These class photos, as she calls them, are fun and dramatic, and they're a great way to see the books she reviews in one year, all together in one place. I love Chris's photos. Her Instagram feed is simple. A finished recipe on a plate against a marble background. It's straightforward and soothing with clear expectations of the food that she is testing on any given day. Chris has worked as an elementary school teacher and studied film at university. Her style draws on both. It's helpful and cinematic, and it's uncomplicated, but it's inspirational. And it's a style she's stuck to since she began reviewing cookbooks on her site, Ship Shape Eat Worthy, in 2015. In this 2021 photo, Chris is wearing a sweater that says, I know, right? I know this sweater. One day before the pandemic, Chris and I met up for a date at Value Village for a thrifting session. Chris and I know each other in real life. We both live in Halifax, but it's cookbooks that brought us together. Chris is a thrifting pro. She skims over the cookbooks, hundreds of them, knowing quickly if there's anything good. Then it's on to the clothes. Me to raincoats, where I find an aquascutum trench coat for $16. And Chris to the endless rows of sweaters where she finds a Smythe sweater, usually in the $500 range, for $10. My eyes widen, she nods, and the words on the sweater answer for itself. I know, right? When I found that, that was like a crazy find. Every time I wear it, I think of that, I think of that day, and I think like that was, that was a good day. We said goodbye, high on the rush of good finds. And that was our last thrifting date. The pandemic began and we retreated to our houses for a few years. It's been too long, so I patched Chris in from the opposite side of the city. The idea was to talk about cookbooks and really dig into what makes a good one. Her cookbooks fill several bookshelves. The books are organized by color, Reds, orange, yellows, greens, blues, indigos, and violets. It's a rainbow made from hundreds of spines. But cookbooks aren't her only collection. So instead, I ask her about her collections in general. 
So, I mean, when I, when I was little, it was tons and tons of books, pencil collection. I think I had an eraser collection. I've got my stamp collection, trading cards. And then as I got older, an array of clothes from all sorts of different eras, old baby clothes, little name tags I had because I worked at, you know, Blockbuster Video and a whole bunch of other little video places. Newspapers from when I traveled when I was a teenager and anywhere I'd go, I'd scrapbook and I'd keep all the newspapers. And every time I went to see a movie, I would like glue that slip of paper into like a scrapbook. Vintage uh, French Canadian pottery. It's it's called Beauceware. have a love of antique jewelry. You know what? It's really funny. I think my life has been about collection slash accumulation. And there's always been that fine line between, you know, a curated collection with things that are very precious and meaningful to like the need to just like accumulate for more sake. Chris grew up in a Canadian-Ukrainian family in Edmonton, Alberta. As we're chatting, she's sitting across from a wall in her living room devoted to another one of her collections, rural Canadian paintings. And there's a folk art scene on the wall, too, of a prairie settlement by Ukrainian artist Anne Harbaz. She's a Maude Lewis-like artist from the prairies. Chris's jewelry collection, specifically lockets, began when she met a serious jewelry collector called Sharon when she and her husband were living in Ontario. Sharon became her antiquing bestie. Sharon and I, when we would go to to Value Village and they would bring out the jewelry tray, let's say, and there would be, you know, five people waiting at the jewelry counter. As they're putting things into the into the showcase and you're, you know, seeing what treasures you can find. There definitely is um, a little high. Later, Chris moved to Halifax, where her daughter Katie was born. The collecting continued, but without Sharon, it just wasn't the same. That passion has kind of gone away. She passed away during the pandemic. And so all those things I think we did together, it was a lot less fun when she wasn't there to share it with. The pandemic gave us all ample opportunity to hang out at home with all of our stuff. And for Chris, it also meant lots of time to reflect on what all those collections meant. I said to my dad once, I said, you know, now I'm at the top of the hill, dad. And like looking down, like I've carried all of this stuff for so long that I think I just don't want to carry it anymore. And I think before having stuff, and maybe it was because I moved away from home, like having it made me feel more connected to people and places. But then I realized, and maybe this is when um, my friend passed away, that it was just kind of stuff and we're just stewards of this stuff until it's someone else's time to become stewards of it. Being a good steward is something we talked about a lot when I was growing up. I'm sure it was my dad's way of saying, don't forget to wipe down your bicycle with the dry cloth after you've been out in the rain. If not, it'll get rusty and your sister's next in line for that bicycle, so please don't ruin it. It was a pain to wipe down that bike with its long banana seat when all I really wanted to do was go inside and make microwave fudge or something like that. But somehow the message sunk in. This bicycle was not mine forever. Take care of it if not for you, for someone else.
About 10 years ago, I was given, I don't know, eight boxes of cookbooks from my cousin Betsy's collection. She was downsizing after a long career teaching cooking classes, and it was time, she said, to only keep what she really needed. At that time, I was building a cookbook library for research purposes, as a reference, and for recipe inspiration. So I merged her collection in with mine. It looks odd at times. A slew of books on American Southwest cookery from the years she spent visiting Santa Fe, or her time studying from French masters like Freddy Girardet and the Rue Brothers and Roger Verger, or the paperback with the author, Perla Myers, on the cover, with an armful of vegetables looking very Jackie-O in the 70s. Suede coat, fair faucet hair. It's called The Seasonal Kitchen. I look at it often for seasonal inspiration and to inspire me to wear my hair down while at the farmer's market. These books are Betsy's. They're her food diary. But I'll keep them while I have the space on my shelves until it's time to pass them on to someone else. Because looking at them makes me think of Betsy. And for Chris, since her daughter Katie was born, her focus on collecting has also shifted to cookbooks. But it didn't begin as a collection. Chris was looking for a connection to food, one that she could pass on to her daughter. When she started reviewing in 2015, Chris said that she and her husband were bread and cheese vegetarians, and she wanted some grounded dishes for her daughter to remember, something beyond the pasta she and her husband were making for dinner, something like the foundation she received growing up in a Ukrainian-Canadian family in Edmonton. So she launched into cookbooks. And so when Katie came along, I thought, okay, I need to make sure that what I'm offering her is nutritious and I understand like what it means to actually live as a vegetarian. But also too, I wanted her to have a connection to food. Cause like, I mean, growing up, there were certain meals that meant something to me, whether it was like like a Sunday roast or things that my grandma would make like cabbage rolls or pierogies or those kinds of things. I wanted to make sure that she had a connection to food and I knew it would be different because meat was no longer the anchor. So how was I going to anchor those things for her and what would be the comforting dishes that would mean a lot to her as she grew up and that when she tastes them when she gets older, like when I have dill, it immediately transports me back to my grandmother's house because she grew dill and that was in all of the dishes that she made. So, you know, what would be those like transportive experiences for Katie? So Chris set out to try new recipes, to learn, and basically just to see what recipes resonated with her family. For my family, I'm thinking about Claire Patak's Violet Bakery chocolate cake with marshmallow icing. My husband James's chicken schnitzel which the boys have always called Daddy's Special Chicken, or my sister's carbonara and Marcella Hazan's slow tomato sauce, or my brother-in-law's version of Jamie Oliver's chicken soup. There are things like Hetty McKinnon's uh, baking tray chow mein or Deb Perlman's uh, crispy tofu and you know broccoli with peanut pesto or Heidi Swanson's uh, curried tomato tortilla soup. Kind of the things that, you know, Katie, Katie asked for, because I, I found now too, with um, reviewing, we don't often eat a lot of the same things. Like there's a lot of just kind of moving forward. And if there's something that I know everybody loves, then I just kind of make note of it. I kind of circle back to those things. But 
It's like the littlest hobo of food. <laughs> Maybe tomorrow we'll settle down, but until tomorrow, we'll just keep like cooking through those books. <laughs> So this is how it works, reviewing-wise. Publishers send Chris cookbooks in the mail. Sometimes she knows what's coming, sometimes it's a surprise. She'll make a stack of cookbooks, perhaps share the covers on Instagram, then she'll go through the books and put sticky notes on the recipes she wants to try. I ask her if she ever just wants to break free and go rogue and ignore the recipes and just wing it in the kitchen. She laughs and says she doesn't test all the time, but when she does, she does it because she likes doing it. She likes to learn, and in turn, she likes to pass on this information to others. So the rhythm of testing varies depending on the day and the week and her family life, but this particular week has been a bumper week for testing. Actually, just earlier in the week, I got a book called Lunchbox. And I didn't know that it was something that the publisher was going to send me. And I'm so glad they sent it because it's such a clever book and I literally want to make everything in it. So I think in the last four days, I've made five recipes out of it. Um, so it's funny, like sometimes a book will hit me and then I just have to like write it through until until the end. And then there are just some books that they're wonderful, but don't like speak to me in the same way. Like maybe, I mean, that Lunchbox is really by Aviva Wittenberg. It's very practical. Like I have to make lunch every day for myself and Casey and Katie. And so there's some really um, practical, delicious things. Like the other day, smartest thing, it's a cross between French toast and a crepe. So you take a, a mini tortilla and you dip it in like eggy custard and then you fry it in a pan. And so it looks like a, a crepe, but it's a little bit more toothsome than a crepe but you can feel it sweet or savory. And it was like the smartest thing. So I had that for lunch. And then when Katie came home, I gave it to her as a snack. And it wasn't something like I thought for sure she would say, oh, like what happened to this tortilla? But it doesn't taste like, like something happens to the tortilla as it cooks in the egg mixture, kind of softens and has like this whole kind of different texture. So two things become something entirely new. So those kinds of things really excite me when I kind of, learn about things I never thought of before. Someone has seen something and then like reimagined something. And I think, wow, how did I live my life without French toasted tortillas? I have no idea. When Chris finishes a recipe, she plates it, usually on one of her everyday dishes. Or sometimes she says she uses one of her special dishes. My mom had sent me just kind of at the beginning of the pandemic, those really beautiful um Finland Arabia dishes, you know, the, the pink and white transferware with the flowers that have been just kind of slowly added to over these years. Then Chris pulls out a board that looks just like marble and places it by the sink under the window. And she adjusts the food and takes a picture. Sometimes Katie's hands are in there too. And then she posts the photo to Instagram. When she's tested a handful of recipes from a book, she'll write the review and post it on her site under Book Club Tuesdays. Her reviews are honest and kind and funny and relatable. If someone reads my review, I want them to have a clear idea of what was cooked out of the cookbook and what my experience was. And it's funny, there have been times where things haven't turned out, but I don't necessarily think 
it made the cookbook bad, if that makes sense. But it's not like a personal attack on the author, if that makes sense. Because I think it's kind of like when I taught and I wrote report cards, just because there's maybe an area where someone needs to improve doesn't necessarily mean, you know, the kid is bad or there's something wrong there. It's just, I don't think anything's perfect. So I think sometimes it's just like, you know, it's what's happened with me. And I don't ever go into something looking to be critical negative because it goes back to joy. Like I just want to feel the joy of cooking and I want to feel happy in what I'm doing. And if I'm looking to have a bad experience or to find the flaw in the recipe, I mean, where's the joy in that? Chris does this for free. She says it's a creative endeavor, something I understand because here I am doing this podcast. Don't you find that it's a lot of like it's a release, like a creative release and an emotional release. I'm not a very athletic person, whereas my sister is really athletic. And so she does a lot of running and she committed to running a marathon last year. And so, I mean, that's a huge time and effort. And so I thought, well, really is a creative endeavor that much different? But I think people look at this and they're, they're like, well, you should be making a lot of money. Why don't you make money? Uh, and I'm in part of this is like an emotional release for me. Like, I think if I didn't do the, like, do the writing, I, I, I don't know. Cause there are lots of people writing things on the internet. There are lots of people, you know, blogging and Instagramming and doing all the things. And I think that for me, it's, it's a real, it's a real passion. And I think that even if none of those things were like, if Instagram wasn't there, I would still need to share it somewhere. Cookbooks kept so many of us company during lockdown. And Chris reminds me that they took us places too. It was those books that I got in the pandemic that kind of, while I was at home, I still could be at other places, whether it was um, visiting Romania in Irina Georgescu's Carpathia or, you know, little bakeries in Scotland like Erin by Fleur Shedden or any of those books, really. I mean, these people kind of guided us through these difficult times. And I think they were the last of the real travel books or like travel books, because I think after the pandemic in that year, probably I would say 2020, even into 2021, it became very focused on home and home cookery. And like you even saw that with Otto Lange and his test kitchen. A lot of the headnotes talked about these were things we ate during the pandemic. And when we only had eggs, we made this. Or when we only had blah, we made this. And so I think the pandemic also changed the narrative course of cookbooks. I think it's been a lot harder for people to leave. Like even um, Olya Hercules has an upcoming book. I think it's called Home Food. And her last book was Summer Kitchen, where she traveled to Ukraine and went through the summer, the traditional summer kitchen. So, I mean, there you you see, you know, her last book was physically somewhere else. And now we're back. We're back at home. And so I think it's interesting that we've got these like this kind of new genre or maybe it's not a new genre, but it's definitely like bolstered, been bolstered during the pandemic, the home books. Chris said her cookbook collection feels different than other collections. Since Katie's been born, 
it's been cookbooks. And it's funny because sometimes I think these things are seen as whims for me, you know, like the, the basket of knitting in the corner or, you know, was cooking going to be like a whim that I enjoyed for a short period of time, or was it going to be something that kind of carried through? And I think because I've made such connections to it, like through my family, um, in terms of tradition, my immediate family cooking for them every day, but then also reviewing cookbooks and, and meeting other people through Instagram and social media. I think that connection to this collection has what's kind of sustained it. But as you can imagine, with seven years of reviewing comes a lot of cookbooks. Chris said that she had accumulated, gosh, probably a thousand books by the time the pandemic rolled around. And being at home for that period of time and looking at stacks, I felt really overwhelmed by it. And I don't know, um, it started to kind of lose its meaning for me. I think once you get into accumulation, it comes with the with that H word, right? Hoarding. And so I just, I didn't want to be that person, you know, lady gets crushed underneath pile of cookbooks as it topples on her and paramedics didn't find her for five days or something like, you know what I mean? Like I had visions of that. My mother-in-law, Rose, has talked about moving from her home and downsizing into something smaller. But the same question stops her every time. What to do about all the dollhouses? Rose inherited nine Victorian dollhouses when her Auntie Amy died. Amy lived on the south coast of England and spent her life collecting these dollhouses and every piece of furniture inside every room as well. She would set out on weekends with her mother and together they would hunt for things like tiny beds, pillows, vintage velvet fabrics to make tiny curtains for tiny windows and little wood stoves and cast iron fry pans and rolling pins and lace placemats and even a ceramic mouse the size of a pea whom Amy put in one of her kitchens next to a minuscule wedge of cheese. While Amy scoured for her tiny things, her mother searched for little jugs, pottery, ceramic, fine bone, glass, it didn't matter as long as they were small. They both were women who darned their socks and wrote letters cross-hatched in two directions to save on paper. But if they found a treasure and the price was right, they bought it without question. When Amy died, the dollhouses in tiny jugs went to Rose. And if you ever go into Rose's laundry room, you'll see another one of Amy's collections, a herd of caramel-colored Staffordshire cows grazing on the shelf next to the laundry detergent. Oh, and there's also all the military paraphernalia she inherited and the creepy porcelain dolls that wear petticoats and sit on tiny settees. So packing up a house like Rose's is actually the equivalent of boxing up 10 houses, hers and her nine dollhouses. Imagine the tiny bubble wrap needed for the tiny place settings or that porcelain mouse and the petite wedge of cheese. Rose is an only child and an only cousin. She's the end of the family tree. She knows it's time to divest, but how do you say goodbye to collections? Chris might say that there's a place for these in someone else's home 
or someone else's museum? So I ended up divesting myself of more than half of half of the books. And so now I think I've got around 400, which it's, I think I've got into a one in one out kind of policy or not a policy, but it's just as I get new books, like I, I see which books are still working for me and maybe which need to go live a better life in someone else's kitchen. And out of that 400, I asked Chris to list a few that are particularly special to her. Like the traditional Ukrainian cookery by Savela Stestitian that I will keep forever and ever. Um, the baking books like Sarah Kiefer and Jesse Sheehan, all of Hetty's books. I find that Hetty McKinnon, I love the way she writes recipes. I love the delicious food that she, that comes from her books. Even now, Casey and Katie know they're so trained that when they have a recipe and I haven't told them who it's by, Katie will say, this is really delicious. It must be Hetty's. And so like, I think they, we just know like there's, she has a certain style. I think it goes to show it's not just about ingredients or instructions. It's just the way you imagine, imagine the food. And so it's really good that way. Deb Perlman's Smitten Kitchen, um, Enya Dunk's Advent is amazing. Oh, um, Diana Henry's From the Oven to the Table. This is my favorite book of hers. Uh, Flora Shedden's Erin. I have that book, Erin by Flora Shedden, but I haven't cooked from it yet. So I asked Chris to give me some of the highlights. Oh, all of her, all of her loaf cakes. Like I love the loaf cakes. I love the salads too, but there's like... Like the butternut squash and honey cake is really good. Um, her blueberry crumble, like it's like a like a little brioche bun with custard and uh, fruit on top. Um, I think. Have you had uh, Gil Meller's uh, root stem leaf flour? Okay, listen to this. And just like that, Chris turns to a page in Gil Meller's book, a rhubarb recipe, and begins to read. Rhubarb is a funny old thing. Even the name is quite amusing when you think about it. I wonder if it has identity issues. It's a vegetable we treat like a fruit. There aren't many vegetables out there that get repeatedly subjected to so much honey and sugar. No wonder it's bitter. I used to work in a cookbook store in London and spent a lot of time watching people browse. English chefs would come in on their days off and pick up books that they thought they should like like an Elizabeth David penguin classic without any pictures or something rich in molecular gastronomy. It was the early 2000s. But then eventually they'd flop down on the red sofa with Nigella Lawson. You know, it reminds me of when I worked at the video store because there were lots of times there comes into that, into play movies that you like that maybe aren't the movies you should like. So, you know, if I go and say to one of my coworkers, hey, you know, I just watched Hudson Hawk, that Bruce Williams movie, and it's fantastic. And they're like, oh, God, like, ugh, you have no taste. Then you then you start to think like part of it has to be joy. You have to consume the things you like. And I mean, it reminds me of Christian Bale when someone asked him about what his favorite movie was, did he mention a movie that was by a famous auteur or, you know, had something special about the script? No, he loved Beverly Hills Ninja, that Chris Farley movie. And I think it, I think it goes to show that there has to be joy in what we do. And, 
you know, what we watch and what we eat. And I think if it has no joy for me, then it's got no place. And I mean, I'm not above talking about things, even though they might not be popular book or popular movie or um, popular food. But I think as long as it's feeding me on another level, then then that's that's what I'm that's what I'm aiming for. I set out to ask Chris about her cookbooks and what she thinks makes a good one. And she said recipes that use weight measurements are the most consistent and headnotes are important because they set recipes apart from one another and give context and tell a story and new techniques that revolutionize her repertoire. They're a bonus. But most of all, a good cookbook should just let you up and bring you joy. So I'm off to watch Beverly Hills Ninja. Can't believe I've never seen that one before. Chris Warman, thank you for everything you do, just for the joy of it. I could have made three episodes from our conversations, and we didn't even get to your bunt pan collection. So to be continued on that. You can find Chris and her work on Instagram at shipshapeeatworthy or via her website at www.shipshapeeatworthy.com. This series is edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme song is Jen Grant's One More Night. Please rate and review the food podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love that. And thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Wilson.